Morning, everybody. Morning, family. You all well? We've been having a wonderful time uh, over the last weeks in our series on prayer, and I've got such wonderful feedback from so many people that have been saying that what it's meant to them and it's really helped them, and I I trust that uh, you have found yourself just more comfortable in prayer and perhaps even just praying a bit more than you have, and may that continue to grow among us. And um, I want to remind you that the heart of this series was really to become aware of the, of the invitation that has been given to us from the Lord, to say, come and spend time with me. Because prayer is, first of all, relational. It's about our relationship that we have with the Lord. When we pray, we're not just talking to some higher power, some force, and, and pouring out our, our needs and asking. We are speaking to our Father, and we are growing in our relationship, our love relationship with Him as we pray, and I trust that that'll continue um, forward, going forward for us. But today in this last episode, I almost said episode, uh, session of this series, uh, we're going to be talking about spiritual warfare. And I want to take you to Matthew 6, verse 13, uh, which is where Jesus now begins to end the prayer that he's told us that when we pray, we should pray the following things. And he includes in that this Statement or this prayer that he said we should be praying. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. Some may say that that's quite a negative way to end a prayer, deliver us from the evil one. Isn't it better to focus on all the positives and the good? Why should we wrap up a prayer with these thoughts, deliver us from the evil one. One of the things I certainly appreciate about the Bible, about Jesus, and about our faith, our Christianity, is that we do not ignore the problem. We don't try and cover it up. We don't make as if it doesn't exist. You'll so often find in, in, in different ways that people may pray or, or meditate that it's about trying to ignore the problem. It's sometimes when people pray, it's like it's escapism. They, they're practicing a, a place where they're saying, you know, I, I just want to find peace and, and separate myself from the problem and act like there's not a problem. Now, that's not what we do in prayer. In prayer, we face head on the reality of the evil that is in this world. Remember Psalm 23 that says that though I go through the valley of the shadow of death. So often that's what happens to us in prayer as we engage with the truth of what's going on and we engage with the evil and the brokenness of this world. We end in a space or, or we journey through a space where we, we're actually in, a, in like a valley of death and shadow. But in the midst of that, we can experience the peace of God. The reality for us as believers is that we have the peace of God within us, but we live in a world where peace is hard to find because we live in a war zone. Letitia mentioned it earlier, that every day, every moment, we live in a battle. We are knee-deep in warfare. C.S. Lewis probably said it in one of the best ways when he said this, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch... Every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Just think about that for a moment. 
Is it true that in your life and my life, every moment, every place is a place that is contended for, that there is a fight going on for that? There's no Switzerland where you can live and, and have an attitude that says, Satan, as long as you ignore me, I will ignore you. Have a pact with the enemy, have a deal. We are living in a war zone where everything in this universe is, fight, is being fought for, claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Martin Luther described a sense and, and gave some language to how often we come into prayer and experience the sense of warfare. He said the following, we must all practice violence and remember that he who prays is fighting against the devil and the flesh. Satan is opposed to the church. The best thing we can do therefore is to put our fists together and pray. When we pray, we are fighting a battle. And sometimes in prayer you'll experience that violence, that tension, that clenching of the fists, raising of your fists in defiance against an enemy that is very real, that is all around us. So how do we behave? What do we do in this reality of spiritual warfare? Every song we sang this morning had a sense of warfare to it, had words that described our warfare. And I think it's very helpful for us to be aware of certain of the truths and dynamics that we've got to remember during this warfare. So how do we fight the war? Perhaps the first thing to say is, if we are in the battle, it's useful to know your enemy. I don't want to know too much about him. He's not my focus. But I would also be stupid to not have a sense of who the enemy is and what his strategies are. In 1 Peter 5 verse 8, it says, Be alert and of sober mind. Don't live with a false sense of security. Don't have a mindset that doesn't pay attention to the reality. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Your enemy, the devil. When the Bible talks about evil, it does not make evil a myth. It does not make evil a symbol. It makes evil a person, the devil. It puts evil into something that is not abstract, but is concrete. There really is evil in this world. And there is an agent that is going around seeking to destroy that is evil. That's very important for us to remember, particularly in a westernized culture where more and more we are being influenced by secularism. And in secularism, there is no personified, personalized evil. Evil is actually something we don't quite know how to understand. We try and find ways to describe and what to do when really evil things happen, but we don't really know what to do with it. You'll notice that every time when on the news some 
evil event is being reported on. Like, you know, some mass murder or a serial killing or some tragic event. Then they, they try and describe why this happened and find a way to, to handle the evil. And so often what we do in our society is we would, we would describe the evil in, in some form of sociological or, or psychological dysfunction. And, and, we, would, and we would say it's, it's because of this person's upbringing that they acted in this way. Or it's because of this problem in society that these people perpetrated this evil. Because we don't really believe that evil is an absolute thing that exists. As it was put by Andrew Dalbanco, he said the following, we have jettisoned in the, Western, in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction, we talk about pathology, we don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century has gone on, it has gone harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustments. The Bible tells us there is an agent of evil. Yes, there are dysfunctions. Yes, there are pathological things that come into play. But we must never forget that lurking in the shadows, pulling the strings, manipulating, lying, creating fear, seeking power, is the devil. A being, a person of some sorts, who's going around, as the scripture says, seeking to devour. He has an assignment against you and an assignment against me. When Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit after he was baptized, he faced the devil for 40 days. He didn't face mythological evil. He didn't face symbolic evil. He faced the evil one. And for 40 days as he was fasting, probably in a very weak state in his body, he had to contend with the devil before he could start his public ministry. We have a very real enemy. In Luke 22, Jesus talks to his disciples and he says to them the following through Simon Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, all of you, as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. He goes around seeking how he can weaken and ultimately hurt and destroy us. In that wonderful chapter of Ephesians, chapter 6, where Paul is talking to believers, he talks to them about this battle that we are in and our enemy that we have. He says the following in verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We live in the manifestation and the physical reality of things that are being contended for in the spiritual realm. The things that we do not see often have such a big impact 
on how we experience life in its reality and in its form here on earth. You see, because we live in a broken world, because we live in a world that has fallen into sin, whenever humans begin to act or form or organize or plan anything, the brokenness starts working its way through our even best intentions and best endeavors. And when human beings begin to build society, as we're building our societies, we can build them with all the good hopes and dreams that one could have. But because we're broken, sin begins to have power in our society. And sin begins to twist and, and, and just cause things to become contaminated, even harmful. We see this in human culture, for instance. Every culture, whether that is the culture of a family, the culture of a business, the culture of a nation, the culture of a community, wherever you find culture, culture is there because of the behavior of the people that live within it. They do life in a certain way. And they express their value system. They make their decisions. They solve their problems because of the way they view life. And because everything in us is affected by our brokenness and our sinfulness, the way we view life is not perfect. We don't solve problems the perfect way. So therefore, every culture has good and bad in it. Every culture has things that can, is worthy to celebrate and things that is worthy to resist and to be challenged. But not only is it because of our human brokenness, but we also have behind the scenes this, the enemy, that comes. And so when a group of people decides to start living together, for instance, and now they, they, a culture starts forming or working together or whatever it is, and their own brokenness starts manifesting itself through that, their culture, that gives the enemy a foothold, some authority, and he starts using that brokenness and he begins to manipulate so that he can plant the seeds of further destruction. That's what Paul talks about when he says there are authorities in the air that have purposes and plans and is working through us, the human beings. And it can do that because of our brokenness. You see, there can be authorities and powers in the air, but they can't really do anything in the physical realm until they have agents, us human beings, that allow them to do that. And we either allow the kingdom of God or we allow the kingdom of Satan. Because it's up to us. So Satan comes and he lies to us. He manipulates us. He brings fear into our hearts. Pete Gregg puts it this way. He says, all human institutions and organizers, organizations from golf clubs to governments eventually develop a culture that is greater than the sum of their parts, more powerful than any of the individuals involved. These cultures can be positive or negative. And so you see like a nation, for instance, going through, through shifts and changes, trying to grow to become a better nation. But in the background, there's the enemy manipulating and lying, deceiving. And he's, he knows how to push our buttons. He knows how to get us to actually cooperate with him when sometimes we don't even know we're cooperating with him. 
You see, one of his strategies that he does is that's why he's called the liar, is he takes God's truth and he twists it. And what God gave us, intended for us to be for our freedom and our blessing, he takes and he twists it till it becomes the thing that actually enslaves us and hurts us. Because he can't bring anything of himself to the table. He's not a creative being. He can only abuse what God has already established. And so he comes into a life of a nation and where God, for instance, in the beautiful nation like ours, the rainbow nation of South Africa, came and blessed us with diversity. The enemy comes in and he adds a little bit of twisting and lying to that. And he causes that to become something that manifests in fear, that manifests in in, in just self-preservation until it becomes a thing that was actually made for our freedom and it becomes our enslavement. And he knows how to use that and he, and he fans the fear that we can all have. And the fear just causes us to do things without even thinking about it sometimes. We just act in certain ways because we're driven by fear. And the enemy keeps on manipulating Cultures aren't easily broken. If, you, if you're in, a, in your front line, let's say part of your front line is your workplace. There's a culture at your workplace. There's a way that you do things at your workplace. There's a way that you solve your problems. And that culture gets established. And sometimes a, a workplace, the culture develops to a point where it can actually become completely toxic. And then some crisis event happens and now the culture has to be changed and new people, new leaders have to come in. But it's exceedingly difficult to change a culture. Even if you put the people that were oppressed by the previous culture in charge of the new culture, they often just repeat the same pattern. They just continue to do the same thing. Because the enemy knows how through fear and selfishness and self-preservation to manipulate us. And so human beings try consistently to break free from the things that hold us bondage and to change things. But we so often end up just at the same place, don't we? Because there's an enemy that manipulates lies. Right now, our nation is in a particular point of contestation. We don't know who's the president, who's going to be the president by the end of the week. And where there are these things happening, don't forget that there's an enemy with an agenda in the background. And he's lying and he's manipulating and he's pushing our buttons because he wants to make sure that he does not have any less authority to exact his agenda. And the enemy will even use good people for his purposes because good people buy to, into the lies of the enemy. And so how do we respond as Christians? We respond by saying we know there's an enemy. We don't just see what is visible to see. We also see that which is invisible. And we deal with that. We know there's an enemy that opposes. In Daniel chapter 10, we read the following. Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained. There was there with the king of Persia. 
So the scripture literally tells us in this situation that Daniel was praying and seeking God's will to be done and and the angels were commissioned but there was a, a battle going on in the spiritual realm that it took the angels 21 days to break through to Daniel to deliver the answer to the prayer. There's a battle going on. Now I, I want to say, this event, for instance, in Scripture is a pretty rare event. You don't see this often repeated in Scripture, this pattern. And when something in Scripture is not securely you know, sustained with a number of Scriptures, it's very dangerous to begin to build a theology and a practice on it. So often people take this kind of thing way too far. Till every street has a demon that's in charge of it and every person has an has a angel that's protecting it and we become so like involved with all of this and that's not useful and that's not what the scripture, don't take it too far. I think the point is there's a battle in the spiritual realm and, and we have to be aware of that battle, be aware of the enemy. Stanley Hauerwas put it like this, he said, The struggles we go through in this world is not simply your personal faults and foibles, your petty petty temptations and peccadilloes. You are up against what we call the principalities and powers. Evil is large, cosmic, organized, subtle, pervasive, and real. The powers never appear as evil or coercive. The powers always masquerade as freedoms that we have been graciously given or as necessities that we cannot live without. So whether it's on a national or international front or whether it's in your own personal life or in your home, there's an enemy trying to manipulate, looking to harm. So, But not only do we know our enemy, we know our authority. When we get to know the enemy, it can be very frightening. And it can cause us to feel so inferior and be anxious. But then that's when we turn our eyes away from the enemy and we begin to look at the truth. And the, the, the first thing we get to know there is we know our authority. He may be big. Evil may be cosmic. Evil may be pervasive. But it is not bigger than our God. Amen? Satan has power, but he does not have all power. Satan has strength, but he does not have all strength. Satan has plans, but he does not have all wisdom. That belongs to our God. And we are seated with our God in heavenly places. Ephesians 2 verse 6. Yeah, come on, let's give the Lord a round of applause for that. (laughs) Ephesians 2, Paul writes, into the context of Ephesus, a city that was like a, a, a city of idolatry with Weird sexual practices and oppression. It was, a, in the spirit, a dark city. And in this city now, the church was beginning to blossom. And a small church was taking shape and root and eventually became the largest church in the New Testament church. But in its early years, Paul was, was blowing on the embers and he was encouraging these Christians, these young Christians that were now facing this, this evil all around them. And he reminded them of this fact and he said, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You may be small living amongst this great evil, 
But don't fight your battle here, fight your battle from up there. You are not fighting as a little soldier, you are fighting as a general seated with the commander in the heavenly places. You have authority. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. As a child of God, I have the right to use that name. Remember when we said, what does it mean to, to use the name of Jesus, to say in the name of Jesus? It's not a magic incantation. It has no power within itself. But when I speak in the name of Jesus, I speak in the character of who Christ is. I speak in the position of that Christ has given me, seated with him in heavenly places. And I speak with the access that I've been granted into the throne room of my Father. That's in the name of Jesus. And I stand in the authority of Christ. In prayer, we are learning to rule and reign with Christ. When we intercede, we are discovering how to implement God's government in a particular place on earth. When we engage in spiritual warfare, we don the mantle we have been given as sons and daughters of the king. It is ridiculous to think that we are just small and don't really matter. We have authority. We have authority. I remember years ago, Natasha and I were treated by somebody and we went on one of these elephant excursions where they have these elephants that you can actually approach and interact with this elephant. So they had this massive elephant. I mean, that thing could, with one swat of that trunk, it'll be the end of me. But that elephant I could interact with, I actually was able to put my hand in his mouth and touch the molars at the back of his, of his mouth. And he would be so gentle with, you know, he'd take a, you'd put an orange in your mouth and he comes and takes the origin, orange out of your mouth. And he doesn't, he has learned the behavior that his power is actually subject to me in that moment. When you stand before with the Satan, with all his bluster, with all his bravado, with all his trying to look so big and scary. You, little old you, have all the authority in that situation. Do not be frightened by him. We respect him, as the Bible says. We recognize his authority. We know that he's a, a formidable foe, a real enemy that can really do danger, that has some authority, that does have power, that is very clever. So we don't disregard him, but we have authority. That's why Jesus could pray, deliver us from evil. If we had no authority, how would we be delivered from evil? But I want you to think about that prayer of Jesus. Remember, he said, when you pray, Pray like this. So he's talking to all of us in the future. He says, in the future, when you're going to pray, pray like this. Deliver us from evil. But didn't Jesus die on the cross to deliver us from evil? Didn't the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ, wasn't that to deliver us from evil? Wasn't that the event that you and I became free from evil? So if we've been made free from evil on the cross... The evil that resides within us. I am no longer a slave to sin, but I am a slave to righteousness. 
My life is no longer governed by Satan. I'm no longer under the curse of sin and death. The curse of the enemy has got no more power over me. I have been delivered from evil. Do you believe that? If you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, do you believe that you have been delivered from evil? So why do we still pray, deliver us from evil? You see, because you and I live in that in-between space now, where we, where we have received the freedom in Christ, but we are still waiting for the fullness of that freedom to be delivered. My favorite TV series of all time is Band of Brothers. It's the story of Easy Company in the Second World War was a parachute bat uh, battalion. And it, it tells a story of how they were trained and went into the Second World War, Normandy, Market Garden, everything. And it follows the story of real life people, real stories of these people. Towards the end of the series, there's an episode where they're now in Germany. They fought their way to Germany and they're starting to liberate German towns from Nazi rule. And so they're in one particular town and as they're doing patrolling and you know, scouting the area, some of the troops come upon a thing that they don't understand what it is. They find a place where there's barbed wires that in, encircles a camp of sorts. And in this camp, they find hosts of dead bodies and also some people still alive but completely emaciated, almost like walking corpses, wearing those striped clothes. And so they don't know what this is. And they begin to engage with them and they said, why are you here? And they told them, no, this is a prison camp. We are in prison. And so they asked them, now, why are you in prison? And then one of them says, Juden, because they're Jews. Now, it wasn't only Jews that was in concentration camps, but in this particular case, they found that these were Jewish people in concentration camps. And so it, the, the, the soldiers that found them didn't know what to do with this. So they ran to town and went and fetched some of the officers and said, you have got to come see this. And so the officers come to this and they, they find this place and the horrible smell, the death, the guards have all ran away. And um, so as they begin to talk with the, the people, they tell them, listen, we've come to set you free. You're free, the war's over. The, 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 the Nazis lost the battle, you are no longer you don't have to be in prison anymore. And they actually begin to open the gates and, and, and the tears begin to stream down these, these captives and, and, and they're free. And they, and they begin to lead them out of the prison camp until one of the medical officers comes upon the scene and he comes and he says, listen guys, I'm sorry to say, but you have to stop letting them out of the camp. Put them back in, lock the gate. And they said, why? How can we do that? They said, well, if you don't, they're just going to wander around the countryside and they're going to starve to death. And if they find food, they're going to eat too much. They have to be treated now. They have to go on a, on a, on a regimental increasing diet. Otherwise, it, it'll just harm them. And the only way we can do that is best if we have them in one place, then we can treat them. And so they start capturing them, putting them back in the prison and lock the gates. And, and you can see the confusion on these people's What are you doing? You told us we're free. Now, that illustration doesn't apply in all things, so don't take that too far. But we are in a similar space where sometimes we, we say, but I've been set free. Why am I still fighting evil? Why am I still fighting sickness, disease, pain, suffering? Haven't I been set free by Jesus? Hasn't, haven't I been delivered from evil? 
Yes, you've been delivered. That's why you can fight. Because you're free, you can fight the evil. You're no longer under the power of the evil. You're no longer cooperating with the evil. You're no longer positioned as a slave in the evil. You are free. And now you are fighting for that evil to be conquered until the day comes when Jesus finally destroys all evil. And a new heaven and a new earth is established. You and I are living in that in-between right now. That's why we do spiritual warfare. That's why we fight the enemy. And we're not just fighting for ourselves. We're fighting for the freedom of others. We're fighting to see others set free. So every day I get up as a free person, completely free, delivered from evil. And I take up my position and I fight in the spirit. I fight the evil in my own life that wants to recapture me. And I fight the evil in the world around me. Because I have been saved. I am being saved. And one day I will be completely saved. That's our experience as a Christian right now. N.T. Wright says the following. That to pray, deliver us from evil, is to inhale the victory of the cross. And therefore thereby to hold the line for another moment, another hour, another day against the forces of destruction within ourselves and the world. Satan has been defeated and he knows this. So he's giving it his best to try and destroy and see what he can break down before his day is over. He is working very hard right now. And that's why us that have been made free need to stand. And Paul says, when you've done all to stand, stand. We are in this battle. So we know we have an enemy. We know we have authority. And now we know how to fight. How do we fight? I'm going to propose three steps in our warfare to the, with the enemy. The first step is diagnosis. It always helps to define the problem. Perhaps the question we can ask when we when we're in our front line, for instance, and we're dealing with stuff, is we say, Lord, uh, Lord, show me what the devil is trying to do here. What are the devil's plans? What is he trying to get right with this person's life or with my company or with my family or wherever you are on your front line? What is the devil busy doing? What are his plans? Now, to determine that, you need common sense. Sometimes we over-spiritualize everything. And, and what we don't want is to become people that see a demon behind every bush. I don't know about you, but two o'clock this afternoon, I think we've got load shedding. It doesn't help I go stand in the middle of the house and say, I bind you, spirit of darkness, in Jesus' name. <laughs> How many of you think that it'll actually work? You foul spirit of darkness that is trying to frustrate the purposes of God in my life. I am a child of the light. You have no place here. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Can I pray with an awareness that the enemy is probably behind the scenes busy, frustrating God's purposes in our nation, trying to kill our entrepreneurial spirit, trying to steal, kill, and destroy from people, trying to frustrate life? Is that true? Can I pray for that? Can I stand in authority and say, Lord, show me what the devil is trying to do? 
while I'm dealing with load shedding. We need common sense. We need wisdom, biblical wisdom, to understand God's purposes and spiritual discernment. Now, spiritual discernment, we've got to be careful with. Because spiritual discernment can just become somebody's preference or feelings. I'm talking about spiritual discernment that's rooted in the word. And that is probably tested within a community. Because otherwise spiritual discernment can be so flaky that it actually contributes to the problem. It doesn't actually help. Diagnose the problem. Then find the prognosis. What does God want to do in this person's life or in this situation? What is your will, Lord? So, Lord, show me what the devil's doing. Show me what you want to do. Show me, Lord, what your purposes were. What, is your, what are your plans for South Africa, Lord? What, are, what is it that you want to do in terms of our energy security and electricity? What, what, what is your dream, Lord? So that I begin to pray that more than what I'm concerned about what the enemy is doing, I want to be concerned about what God is doing and what he wants to do. And then the third step is to prescribe the medicine. So how do I then prayerfully begin to take authority against the enemy's plans and speak God's plans? And what practices can I do to actually counter the enemy's works and to begin to build God's plans in a place? Let's say, for instance, you work in a company. And in your company, there's just everybody's negative and cynical. You start praying and say, Lord, what is going on? What is the enemy trying to do? And the Lord will show you. Then you say, Lord, now what are you wanting to do with my company? What godly order do you want to establish? And the Lord says, okay, this is what, and then you say, Lord, how can I contribute to that? And then the Lord may say to you, well, the first thing you can do is stop contributing to their cynicism and negativity by just saying the same things, being part of the problem. Then the Lord may show you his dreams and plans. Then you start saying, okay, Lord, now I'm going to speak that. I'm going to pray that. I'm going to find not overly spiritualized, silly things to say in conversations, but I'm going to start speaking hope. I'm going to start speaking the, the conviction that you give me in the conversations. And I'm, I'm starting to change and challenge the culture. That can be true of a family. That can be true in any situation. We must know how to fight. In Ephesians 6, Paul talks to us about the taking on the full armor of God. And as you know, that most of the armor is defensive. The helmet, the breastplate, the, 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 the belt, the shield. But when it comes to the sword, this is our offensive weapon. We are not just standing and defending. We are also called by God to take ground from the enemy. To take power away from him. To move him out of certain situations. And the way we do that is with the sword, which is the word. The same way Jesus did it. Remember when Jesus was in the desert, as I earlier mentioned. How did the enemy come against him? The enemy said, you know, like Jesus was hungry, has fasted for 40 days. The enemy said to him, man, you're the son of God. If you speak to the stones, they will become bread. Would it have been a sin for Jesus to speak to the stones to become bread? No. Would it have been wrong for Jesus to eat bread? No. But Jesus knew there's a higher thing going on here. There's a greater purpose. And he was not going to give in to his humanity, his human need. You see, and that's what the enemy knows us. 
He knows how to get us to give in to our human needs, our fears, our concerns, our hopes, our dreams, and he manipulates them. Jesus said to him, no, no, he said, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth out of the mouth of God. Jesus said to him, more than what I need bread, I need to do the will of my Father. My life, my security, my happiness, my future lies not in this little bit of bread that you want to give me, but it lies in the hands of my Father and in the words that my Father speak. It is written. And every attack of the enemy he countered with the sword of the word. And so therefore, not only did he defend, but he actually put the devil in his place. And this is how he started his public ministry. You and I have the same sword, the same word that we can use, that we fight the enemy with. Now, this sword is probably a little longer than what the general Roman soldier's sword was. The, the, the gallus was about probably that long. And Paul uses that image of a sword like this because he's trying to say to us that warfare with the enemy is up close and personal. It is hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's not sitting in an office somewhere with an air conditioning system and a drone and you're fighting the enemy far away and you have no, and then you go for lunch. This battle that we fight is every day. You know, when you're fighting sword fighting like this, I suppose, I've never done it, but I would suppose that if you're fighting with a sword like this with somebody, you can actually smell them. You can feel their presence. You can see the look in their eyes. You, you feel the tension within their body because you're up close and personal. When you and I fight the devil, we are up close with him, but we have the authority because of the word. And we must be skilled in how to wield the word. You see, you can't make the word say what you think it should say. You can only make the word say what God intended it to say when he wrote it. So if you just say it is written but you don't have a clue and you're actually abusing the scripture and using it in the wrong way, then you're actually playing into the devil's hands. But when I know the word, that's why as a believer, every disciple has to have a love affair with the word of God, has to have a pattern where you're studying the word of God and you're growing in your knowledge and understanding of the word and how to apply it. We're sharpening our swords all the time because this is our weapon. I'm so thankful that I know far more about the word now than I did when I got my degree. Because every day we engage with the word. We cannot live without our sword. For those of us that did military service, you'll remember when they issued you your rifle, which is probably the sort of modern day version of a sword. They taught us that this is the most important thing you own and have. You, they actually told us to call it your wife. So your, your rifle was your wife. You had to look after it. You had to make sure that it was perfect and clean and because you, you never know when you're going to need it. Our swords cannot be left in the dust somewhere. Because then you can have all the authority positionally, but you don't know how to use it. And the devil will walk over you all day long. Lord, teach me your word. So that I can... Resist the work of the devil. John Wimber said the beautiful thing. He said, it is better to plant seeds than to pull weeds. When we use the sword, it's to plant the will of God. We're not focusing on trying to undo what the devil has done as much as we're trying to do what God wants to be done. Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven.
in, on your front line, say, Lord Jesus, help me plant the seeds for the future of the kingdom that will come in this place. Some, some others have planted seeds that we are suffering for from today because of the harvest that has come of the bad seed, the weeds that were planted. But now, Lord, thank you that I can plant the seeds for the future through my prayers, through my actions in my front line. Last three things I want to say about spiritual warfare. To practice spiritual warfare, three steps. Pray it, practice it, preach it. Our spiritual warfare happens in prayer because we pray. When we pray, we look for God's purposes. What did, why did God establish this nation? What was his calling on this nation? And we discover that in prayer. Then we pray from that place and we say, Lord, now help us to see your kingdom come, your will done. Redeem this nation. Restore us. Deliver us from evil. Forgive us, Lord. And we pray. We stand in authority and we can do that. We look for what God is currently doing, the grace that he's showing in our nation or in your front line. What, what, is, what are you doing? And I begin to pour my prayer and my support into that. And then we begin to look with faith forward and we look to what God is going to do. We, we pray. And then we practice. Our spiritual warfare is not merely prayer, it's practice also. It's what we do. We plant the seeds through the different actions. Often it's the opposite spirit that we practice, that we, we're different. We break the cycle. We break the pattern because we just act different. If you're in a context where nobody has time for anybody else, where everybody's just trying to get ahead for themselves and doesn't care how anybody else is doing this, there's, there's no generosity, then then you may say, Lord, help me to be the opposite spirit. I'm going to start giving my time and attention, my resources to help others do better. I'm going to invest in others. I'm not going to be all about myself. And you begin to do spiritual warfare and you break something. You change something, the opposite spirit. So you pray it, you practice it, and then you preach it. By preaching it, I don't mean get a pulpit and stand in the corner of your office and start preaching. I mean at these right times and places to tell people, to say, listen, you know, I used to be as cynical and as negative as you are, but I've, God has been speaking to me, and this is my conviction now. Share it with people. That proclamation in the Spirit is so powerful, because it's, it's the proclamation that is the two-edged sword that cuts down what the enemy has built. Sometimes just one word spoken by a believer in faith can begin to crumble a whole castle that the enemy has built because everybody's believed that castle and you start giving a different version. They start going, perhaps that's not true because remember everything the devil builds, he builds on lies. If you speak the truth, the lies begin to crumble. But as long as we're all speaking the same lies, it looks so powerful. It can be changed. Worship team, will you guys come and just join me. We are in a battle. Right now, you're in a battle. I don't know how the battle's manifesting in your life, but you're in a battle. I want you to stand with me this morning. You may feel powerful and victorious in the battle. You may feel weak and threatened 
but we can come to Jesus. And one thing we have to remember is that our battle, we fight differently than what the enemy fights. Satan fights against us with violence, with lies, with deception. We don't fight back in the same way. How did Jesus win the greatest spiritual warfare that was ever thought? When Jesus was taken to the cross, he didn't call the armies of the, of the Lord to crush the plans of Satan. What did he do? He allowed them to crucify him. And Satan thought he won the war, but he lost the victory. Because Jesus conquered sin and death in that moment. Sometimes you and I will experience the pain of the, of the war. And feel like we're losing the battle, but we are winning the victory. Sometimes we'll pay the price for the freedom of others. But we are winning with the victory. We're standing in the victory. Right now, you could be in a situation where you feel the, the battle and you think it's unfair. And like Tish said earlier, you feel like I, I'm becoming weak. I don't have the resources. Nobody's fighting with me. I'm alone. And you can feel weak. But how, what does the scripture say? When I am weak, then he is strong. Because we fight differently. We fight differently. We don't fight flesh and blood. So can I ask you this morning, can you imagine yourself just taking up your sword in the spirit? If you can, just raise your hand like this and say, I'm taking up my sword. I'm taking up my position, my place in this war. I'm not looking for neutral territory. I'm looking to engage. I'm not going to be weird and super spiritual and do unnecessary things, but I'm going to stand in the Spirit. Every place where the Lord places me will be a place where the enemy's work will be exposed, will be torn down, and where the seeds of the kingdom can be planted. Not by our mouth, not by our strength and wisdom, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given me the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the belt that girds my loins with the truth. Thank you, Lord, that I can take on the shoes of the readiness to go and share the good news of the battle that has been fought and the victory that's been won. I take up my sword, Lord, today in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that you will commission us as your soldiers again in Jesus' name. Show us the authority we have in you. In our families, on our front lines, that we will war for your kingdom to come in Jesus' name. Thank you for being with us today. We look forward to seeing you tonight. We're going we're gonna to sing a song as we go out. Please remember 5 o'clock tonight, we're starting with uh, You Can Come and will be open you can come and have fellowship there will be a nativity scene photo booth and just and then at six the, the evening will start if you need prayer this morning if you're in a war and a battle you need somebody to stand with you please come to the front let us pray with you perhaps you're here today and you're saying i've never surrendered my life to jesus i have no hope to win this battle come let somebody pray with you and we're going to pray and, and trust the lord for his grace upon your life if you need healing if you're watching us online thank you for joining us today and, and reach out to us um, through the email that's on the, on the screen now. And may the Lord just bless you. Let's sing this song and you're welcome to come forward for prayer. Thank you, guys.